Subject 1, alias Hackalope. Subject has a history of working in computer security for over 20 years. He has been observed to several Fortune 500 companies and federal agencies during that period. He has been amassing historical information related to espionage and covert action as well as corporate malfeasance. Subject 2, alias Emir. Subject has a history of working in computer security for the last 10 years. He has been observed at NASA facilities regularly. We've also tracked him to the gym where he seems to be bodybuilding. We are amassing evidence to charge him with felony for skipping leg day and curls on the squat rack. Subjects are suspected of having information related to hacking the Gibson. Uh, the accounting subdirector of the Gibson's working really hard. I think we got a hacker. So, Mir, what were you doing in 2003? 2003? I was yeah. probably sitting in a basement playing Final Fantasy Tactics, I think. Maybe I was going to school, but probably so, not. So not deep in InfoSec at the time. Uh, do you remember hearing about the Slammer Worm? Not at the time, um, especially since I did not watch the news. But you know, since getting into the cyber realm, I have heard of it as a historical topic. Well, it's my favorite virus ever. Uh, and that's today's topic one of the first big impact worms that we that we had and it in a lot of ways it changed the way that we do things in infosec a lot of the stuff that i know that you and i have talked about about compliance and running an enterprise actually came from slammer and and some of the worms that that happened about the same time so way back in 2002 at black hat asia july 4th a uh, guy you might have heard of, he was a, in the world of cybersecurity, a, a big bug hunter, especially in the uh, 20 aughts, a uh, guy named David Litchfield. He did a presentation. Yeah. Well, he and his brother are, are, are actually have uh, have won some uh, bug bounty contests and stuff over the years. Um, he's, he's a pretty well-known uh, voice. And on July 4th uh, at Black Hat Asia, he was talking about uh, vulnerabilities, buffer overflows in uh, database servers. He did a presentation about an Oracle vulnerability that that happened, but also the vulnerability that Slammer exploited. And he released with it some proof of concept code of how it worked. Hmm. Well, that news got over to Microsoft uh, officially on July 24th, 2002. Wait, are you telling me Microsoft was involved in some kind of vulnerability? I, I know, it's shocking. Uh, <laughs> and in fact, these were the days before WSUS existed. Or Windows Update. Uh, oh, a lovely tool that never breaks in any capacity whatsoever. Yeah, but it didn't even exist at that point in time. Um, all of your patches had to be hotfixed manually. Um, and this hotfix was released on October 16th, 2002. But like I said, patching wasn't exactly automatic. And a lot of people didn't patch because it was some extra work. In fact, I don't know if you've uh, if you've ever heard about the mentality of if we patch or every time we patch, it breaks something. Yeah, I mean, that is literally the mentality still in the government sector. Well, it's the attitude of lazy admins everywhere. That's but, why we're still running Windows XP. Exactly. But uh, at the time, that, were, that was what almost everybody believed. Didn't apply patches or you applied patches that were available for any given system right up until it was in production. And then you might patch and test once a year, maybe. Damn. So when this patch was released in October, 2002, basically nobody used it. And this affected 
all SQL Server released at the time, SQL Server 7.0 and SQL Server uh, 2000. It was actually rolled into Service Pack 3, which again, was not applied by anywhere close to everybody. But there's something that made this worse. Microsoft, in days before MySQL, built a kind of micro desktop version of SQL Server called Microsoft Desktop Engine. And it connected to your uh, OBDC drivers, your, your, your open database connections and everything, just like a SQL Server. Um, it didn't have fault tolerance. It, it, had, it was a lot smaller uh, in, in terms of footprint and what it could do, but you could basically prototype anything that needed a database backend with MSDE. Interesting. So you had a lot of developers and power users that had this installed on their desktops. Can you see where this is going? Uh, um, yeah. So January 25th, 2003, the SQL Slammer worm, or sometimes known as the Sapphire worm, started hitting things. The recorded number is 75,000 victims, and I'm pretty sure the, the number is much, much higher than that. Was there a reason behind calling it Sapphire worm? Like, where did that name come from? Or is it just... Uh, you know what? I didn't... I didn't figure that out. I think it was a different virus company. Uh, um, it's possible it was named that before they saw the impact because this thing knocked networks all the way down. You know, you would have a small number of vulnerable systems on a given network and it would take it entirely down, cause routers to dump their routing table, crash and go completely offline just okay. because of the sheer volume of, of, of stuff that this would send out. I, I happen to know personally that it knocked down more than one Fortune 500 network. Uh, <laughs> in fact, a very shameful tale of my early time in, uh, in InfoSec, uh, I was at a Fortune 500 company uh, that had a very small security department. And in that very small security department, I was responsible for all vulnerability scanning for the entire division. Um, really? I mean, it's kind of impressive that you even had vulnerability scanning back then. That was part of the reason why they, they let this green 23-year-old uh, do it is because nobody cared. They said, hey, you know, hacky, make this happen. And we were doing the scanning, but I was using ISS's uh, internet scanner at the time. I mean, I know that you've done scanning and like Nessus has the management console that lets you have a bunch of scanners uh, mm -hmm. and a lot of things work that way now. There wasn't a central console that coordinated scan jobs or anything back then. Okay. So each one of my scanners had its own Microsoft desktop engine database server on it. And I was using some really cobbled together Perl code to both manage the scan jobs and run reports from those little databases. Well, when Slammer hit, my Microsoft desktop engine scanner boxes weren't patched for this either. <laughs> and my half a dozen scanner boxes accounted for half of the systems that uh, were propagating Slammer in the, in the East Coast headquarters of that division. Um, one of the two major points of presence of the entire network. So that's a nice claim to fame. Yeah. Uh, so I was at least half responsible for knocking down that entire network. Now, luckily, that network was knocked down. It was a significant problem. But luckily, uh, it was caught over the weekend. And the lord of all graybeards that was 
one of my three bosses in in the in an office space uh kind of arrangement that you get in fortune 500 how, how long how long of a beard are we talking like well level? he actually didn't have a beard but he had more experience in basically every in everything than i think i have now i'm not i might have a little bit more experience on networking stuff but he like knew everything about everything it was, it was more of an internal beard yes Yes, the the I think the beard was locked up for safekeeping because if the beard if anything ever happened to the beard the that entire division's IT would implode. Makes sense. Yeah, so he was actually the one they called to take care of it, and I got a little bit of a talking to when I got back in the office the next week. So, I, so this is actually one of the very few worms I didn't do direct incident response on because once we knew about it and knew what happened, we put in some pretty significant defenses, not just patching, but blocking some, some network traffic to make sure that it didn't destroy our wide area networking. But one of, one of, the, one of the great shames of my career is, is that uh, I was responsible for one of the most significant uh, uh, infosec events that any network I've been responsible for has been hit with. So you do list that on your resume, right? Top and dead center. Yeah, in flashing <laughs> lights and neon. It's yeah, really cool what you can do with. Is it, on, is it on your Angel Fire website where the music can't be turned off? <laughs> no, but now I think I should update that. I mean, <laughs> so the question is, how could it get this? Do you know off the top of your head basically how a buffer overflow works? The vaguest of understandings of flooding the memory allocation. Exactly. You, you, you flood the memory allocation until you overwrite a part of memory that is storing an executable piece of code rather than uh, something that's supposed to be in memory. Right. And you encourage the system one way or another to execute that. Now, in the olden days before a lot of the buffer overflow protections... Uh, that wasn't that hard. You you could pretty easily find a piece of memory within the within the way that they were going to with the uh, memory footprint was structured for a given program, and you right. could find an execution space. This is this is how they um, basically broke uh, game licensing back in the day, right? I mean, not that I never or I, I ever pirated games because I would never do such a thing if any you know authorities are listening to this. Uh, I, as I understand it, that was part of the techniques used, yes, to, to get them to basically dump out the game license stuff that they obfuscated on disk otherwise. Interesting. Uh, but uh, so Slammer was a buffer over a buffer overflow worm and buffer overflow implies, uh, or at least a successful one, implies remote code execution. Um, and there were other remote code execution buffer overflow based worms, Code Red and NIMDA. Uh, which had both occurred in 2001. One was in July and the other one was in, in September. And just a bit after this, uh, in August 2003, another really big buffer overflow worm, the blaster worm, uh, also occurred. Okay, I vaguely but, remember learning about that in college. But none of those brought down networks simply from the amount of traffic they generated. Okay. Now, the reason was that all the other buffer overflows they all affected TCP-based services. And because they had to do the three-way handshake and everything, the attacking system needed to be able to handle all of the connections and all of the communication. Mm -hmm. Slammer didn't have that problem. It affected the SQL Server session listening service on 1434, which is no longer part of the way that SQL Server works. 
but because it was UDP, the attacking system could just spray out the packets, didn't have to worry about any kind of responses. Very nice. And it was able to do that because the entire worm, from the buffer overflow to the to the worm itself, fit into 376 bytes. Shit, really? Yeah. Wow. So it could propagate so fast, spray so many packets, the impact that it had, because it did basically nothing to, but propagate, the impact that it had knocked down networks, especially wide area networks. But I actually saw switches essentially melt under the weight <laughs> on occasion. That, that is amazing. And that is, in fact, the reason it is my favorite virus of all time, is because the propagation method and the actual attack, the exploitation, were the same mechanism. It's so elegant. And now, hopefully we'll never see this again. My my foggy memory might be betraying me. Or but was this the one worm that um, it was released on accident? No, I don't believe this one was released on accident. Or at least okay, I might no be remembering a different one of, of it being released on accident. Okay, but I believe that the the seventy five thousand figure is a massive undercount, and that is. That continues to be a problem in in InfoSec is we don't have a really good understanding of the impacts of things. We may get into some of that a little bit later if we ever get a chance to do an episode on the TJX attacks and exploitation and how we learned of that and what actually occurred there because it they wouldn't have reported it at all if it hadn't been a material uh, material weakness uh, that they had to report to the SEC there was no requirement of reporting at that point in time. But that's that's another episode. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty typical. And yeah. everything. no one wants to report that they, there was any failing on their part. Exactly. Well, I mean, even in the government world where reporting is required, everybody will only report what absolutely has to be reported. Exactly. Now, one of the things that, that came out of this was that the proof of concept code that was done by by David Litchfield looks like it was used or that it was used as a template for the actual attack and the fact that the vulnerability was released in principle six months uh, ahead of time was a point of contention the full disclosure movement was kind of in its infancy at that point in time bug track was only a few years old well mm -hmm. bug track as as a normal security tool i think that that it started a little bit it started a little bit longer, but it wasn't like a common security tool at the time. And in response, David Litchfield actually posted to BugTrack, I have an excerpt that, that, I, that I'm going to read. After careful consideration, I have decided that the publication of a proof of concept does have an important and beneficial role to play on in, in internet security. The threats and risks internet connected systems are exposed to are well known. Connect to an unpatched system on the internet and it will be compromised by a worm or a hacker within minutes. There are people out there with high levels of intelligence developing, sharing, and actively using exploits against such systems. There is much to be learned from these people and their exploits. But if this was the only source of information for those working on in the security industry, then the bad guys would always be one step ahead of the good guys. And if they're one step ahead, we lose. And so do the organizations we're trying to protect. It is imperative, therefore, that we derive and make available to everyone our own source of information. If we configure the bugs still waiting to be discovered before the bad guys, we can then alert the vendor to the problem and get the fix out 
hopefully giving people a chance to get the systems patched. This is very close to the thinking today. This was very early in the infancy of the full disclosure movement. We're right now in what we call the responsible disclosure movement, which was an outgrowth of full disclosure. The responsible disclosure model is you alert the vendor with your proof of concept, and they are it's incumbent on them to be responsive and to give credit. Uh, <laughs> oh, and that, that always happens. Actually, it works. It works very well with the large vendors. It works works pretty well with a lot of other vendors. We I have can see it with the large vendors. I don't know if you saw the recent news for the TCL um, Android TVs. And no, I did not see that. Uh, they apparently host their entire file system over uh, HTTP with all Lovely. the default logins. And I believe the guys right up there on I think it was Reddit NetSec that I was reading it on. It was a like epic like Lord of the Rings journey for him to even find contact information as to how mm. to get in touch with the TCL security department. In fact, one representative kind of laughed at him and was like, I don't think we have a security department. Wow. Well, that's why we have full disclosure. The point of responsible disclosure is to give them time to patch it. But if they're completely unresponsive, then the world needs to know in capital letters. Uh, so working as intended. but. That, that does hurt me a little bit because uh, while I'm looking over at the TCL TV I've got sitting in, in my office here. Yeah, <laughs> I have one in my living room and I was sitting there watching it as I was reading that write-up. Thankfully, Roku devices um, were not affected, apparently. Only oh, excellent. Device. Well, <laughs> excellent enough. Yeah, until they find the Roku vulnerabilities. But, you know. Well, dear gentle listeners... Let that be a lesson, let you know that all not all InfoSec problems are solved. In fact, quite far from it. <laughs> but going back to patching, this was one of the the some of the some of the worms that I that I was detailing, Slammer being a big one. It was it was very impactful to a lot of organizations. Got people to kind of get off the oh, if it's working, we don't need to patch it train. Patching became more became a best practice rather than um, something you only did if you kind of felt like it. Correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, we still ran into the issue. Um, oh, God. What was the vulnerability with the remote desktop that got leaked from the NSA five years ago, four years ago? Whatever. But anyways, you know, we ran into the same issue where you had unpatched Windows servers that were sitting out on the internet who had not been patched in like five years or six years or possibly not even patched since 2003 for the slammer virus. Yeah. And the thing is, the, to their great shame, they had the availability of Windows Update. I remember patching back in this point in time, and what you had to do, and I actually wrote a stupid little Perl program that would do this, is you download all of the, all of the uh, hotfixes that you were going to apply, and then you had to run them, sometimes in order, but you wanted to run them with a set of switches to do it quietly so that you could run them silently without asking for the user okay as part of a login script because there wasn't really a way to make them do it on a you could make it do a scheduled job but you couldn't like queue it to uh install on shutdown in fact even with early sus you couldn't do that uh it would and run imagine, when it wanted to run i imagine it was very enjoyable for trying to figure out what the correct sequence of patches to execute was yeah a lot of times it was it was um it was very much trial and error to see what what caused a crash and what what needed a reboot before you could apply the next thing um yeah. like as i'm sure other people that are listening to this are aware uh windows 
not very great at patching even nowadays. Um, it's always fun to watch your computer entirely just blue screen. At least there's restore points now in the in a world before VMware. In fact, when we were doing that trial and error, you had to pull in a, a ghost image every time you uh, you wanted to reset your testing. Oh, wow, the really? disk. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but we also started doing vulnerability scanning. You very co- correctly noted that vulnerability scanning was not a common thing when this originally happened. In fact, I remember 2001 when Code Red hit, there weren't even scanners to find infected systems. Uh, my team, uh, me and me and actually the Greybeard that I was talking about earlier, wrote a little bit of a of a uh, program that did port scanning on. So the way that that one worked is once it infected you, it would start up a little HTTP server mm-hmm. that would host the virus code, the second stage downloader. So it would go and it would connect and it would ex- exploit a system, and then it would have that system come and grab the rest of the virus off of the attacking system. Nice. Uh, and, but the thing is, it always happened on the same port. You'd think that that would be very easy to find nowadays, and it would be very easy to find nowadays, but nobody knew how to use Nmap back then. Nmap did exist, but oh, did very, okay. few people, very few people knew how to use it. I happened to be one of them. So between me and the Greybeard, we figured out how to use Nmap to find those ports and figure out and remove all the false positives. Because in that particular case, the same port was being used by a ad blocking, you could run on your local system, this ad blocking proxy that ran on the same port. And so what we had to do was find everything that had that port open and then do a very simple uh, banner grab to grab to see whether or not it was the um, the proxy or if it was the virus. Interesting. I am fully going to embrace my gray beardedness once I finally get there and buy a wizard hat, I believe. Yes. Well, yeah, I think yeah, that means that you have to get on uh, IRC. All, all of my all of my passwords on my systems will be uh, friend in uh, Dwarvish. Oh, well, at least it's not Hunter Two again mm-hmm. for everybody who's read Bash.org. Anyway, back to Slammer. The thing is, one of the reasons why I believe it was uh, it affected more systems than a lot of the official reports say is that a lot of internet traffic monitoring. For years afterwards, I remember specifically looking at Arbor Network's Atlas system, which I don't know is if it's still online, but at the time they, w- they ran a lot of uh, just traffic volume analysis for ISPs and networks. They, they were, had one of the, fir- the earliest uh, network anomaly detection systems, but any place that had one of their systems kind of listening on a boundary, they just took statistics from it in kind of a very early cloud um, aggregation mechanism and one of the highest seen blocked port traffic was uh 1434 and the only thing it's uh, 1434 udp and the only thing that's ever been used for is that sql server listener which one can infer from just the traffic volume that somebody was either trying to exploit the vulnerability or infected systems were trying to send traffic out on the internet for literally years after the um, the worm was released. Not surprising. And again, both of us have worked in the government world, and uh, and we have to do a lot of compliance work about patching and vulnerability scanning. It's you know an everyday part of hey, have you patched? All of that 
really started, all of that governance stuff came from these kind of worms. It's where it started. It was not common practice at the uh, at the beginning of the Windows 2000 world. People had firewalls in place and started to do web filtering. But patching just wasn't a thing that people did up until they got schooled by these things. You would think common sense would have dictated possibly patching before this, but I mean, having worked in the industry even just for as long as I have now, uh, there is no common sense really. So yeah, I think of it about as a toddler touching a stove. Yeah, just repeatedly <laughs> over and over again. And, and, until you get burned by it, you won't learn your lesson. And sometimes it, you have to be burned multiple times. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's the story of the slammer worm. You never knew that it affected basically everything you do for your government customer, but it, it is the beginning of all of the paperwork that you have to keep and every little sign-off you have to get for making sure a system can go online. All the joys of my day-to-day work. Yep, you can thank whoever really... Well, you can thank David Litchfield. Recording notes can be found at www.hackingthegibson.online. Follow Hack the Gibbs 1 on Twitter to get notified of new recordings. Support the continued observation of Hacking the Gibson on Patreon.